This morning, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And uh, we may pick up a couple of verses back in chapter 14 along the way. Before we read the scripture, though, I want to remind you that beginning on October the 6th, we're going to be having a special emphasis in our church called 40 Days of Prayer. And we're going to invite all of you to participate in one way or two or three ways. One way, of course, is to be in the services here in the worship times. And Josh and I will be preaching on the theme of prayer for those Sundays. And then another way you can be involved is to be in a Sunday school class. Uh, most of our classes, I believe, have agreed that they're going to use this prayer emphasis as their Sunday school lessons. We have provided some books, or we'll be having those books delivered soon, we hope, uh, for our teachers to use. We have a, a short video to be shown before each class, and we think we've got every classroom covered with a video projector or a TV with a video player. And then, of course, there will be student guides to use during these Sundays, six Sundays, emphasis on prayer. And then the next way you can be involved is to plan to devote time during these 40 days, special time, if you will, to prayer. It is remarkable when uh, surveys are taken as to how much time Christians actually spend in prayer before the Lord. Some time ago, I did a little study on that, and it discovered that I discovered that some of our national denominational leaders didn't spend a lot of time in prayer. I remember one man in particular who was head of a denominational agency, and he said, well, basically, I spend my prayer time on the way to work in the car. Whoopie doo. I mean, the way some of our Baptists drive, you ought to pray a lot more than you do. I mean, especially your pastor. Sometimes we, I take people for riding my car, and that gets their prayer life caught up at least a little bit, you know. But what we're asking our church family and each member to do is to concentrate some time just on prayer for our church during that time. And you can pray for other things, of course. We don't want to say don't pray for other things, but especially some time in prayer for our church, that we would be effective in winning lost people to Christ, that we'll be able to minister to hurting people, that we might be, <clears throat> excuse me, an effective church in this community. And I don't know anything that's ever been hurt by prayer, do you? But I believe that God always uses prayer to get his work accomplished in this world. So I hope you'll pay uh, some time to that. And We'll also be having, and, and we'll have these available, Lord willing, next Sunday, a prayer notebook. If you'd like to have one, you can make your own, or we have some we're going to put together, and you can have them at our cost. I don't know what that'll be, 5 or $6 maybe. But it's a little notebook that has some dividers for each day of the week. It'll also have 40 devotionals on prayer written by our staff. It'll also have some blank pages where you can write your own notes for the sermons, write your own prayer requests, and, and we'll give some instruction with that. So that's all coming up next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, October the 6th, not only will be our picnic, but we'll be kicking off the emphasis on prayer, okay? Let's look at the passage of Scripture before us. I'm reading today from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Some of you may have that. It's uh, not the latest translation, but a very good scholarly translation of God's Word. John 15, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray about it. Our Father, we pray that as we look at these verses of Scripture, as we look at this passage, that your Holy Spirit will indeed speak to each of us and give us that sense of being warmed and encouraged, or perhaps, Lord, being convicted and being warned of the danger to come. Lord, let your Spirit work in each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus in this chapter, is in the middle of preparing his disciples for his death. They don't know exactly yet what's going to happen. They will not know until after the fact, really, what has happened and what it all means. And so you see in chapter 14, many of you know that passage, Jesus talks about, I'm going to go away, and if I go away, I prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself, that wherever I am there, you may be also. That's chapter 14. And so after he gives them a lot of instructions there, including some instruction on the Holy Spirit, he comes to this passage where he uses this grand analogy of the grapevine. Now, some of you may know a lot about grapevines. I don't know a lot about them, but I know a little about them. But in Israel, in the time of Jesus, and even hundreds of years before Jesus and long after Jesus, the grapevine was and is one of the most essential parts of the agricultural industry in that country. In Jesus' day, there were figs, and there were dates, and there were grapes. These were the greatest crops, aside from the grain, of course, that they grew, wheat and oats and rye and barley and whatever else they grew. And so it was very essential for people to understand something about grapevines. In fact, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a linen curtain that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies, and Josephus, in one of his works, one of his historical records, says that across the top of that curtain at the roof, there was a huge, solid gold grapevine. And from that grapevine, solid gold hung different branches and leaves and even clusters of grapes. And wealthy Jewish people would often donate something to add to that gold, vine, gold uh, grapevine, whether it was to try to earn their way with God or not, we don't know. In fact, Josephus says that there was one cluster of grapes that was as tall as a man. 
that's just simply to say grapevines were big in Jesus' day. Everybody knew about grapevines. Everybody saw the grapevines. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the image of a grapevine often stood for the nation of Israel itself. And so this is a very important, big teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ when he says, my father is the vine dresser, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now notice in the very first part of our scripture text, he says the father does two things. He cleans the vine and he clears out the vine. Notice he cleans the vine by pruning those branches that are able to bear now, why would you do that? Well, the obvious reason is to make it bear better fruit. To make it bear better fruit, every year, sometime in December or January, the pruners would go through the vineyard and they would cut off the vines. Not totally cut them off, but trim them back that were fruit-bearing vines or branches connected to the vine. They would sometimes then come across those branches that were actually not vitally connected to the vine, that were not fruit producing. They just sucked the strength out of the vine and they would take those completely off and throw them in a pile and eventually they would burn them. It's interesting to note that when Jewish people were required to bring wood to the temple to be able to burn the sacrifices, there were certain times when each of the tribes would bring wood, they were barred from bringing any grapevines. The wood of a grapevine is not good for anything but to be burned, but it was not to be burned for sacrifices. The only reason this grapevine had branches was to produce grapes. And so he would clean some of the branches, he would clear out some of the other branches. That's the father's role. God didn't give us that role, did he? God didn't give us that opportunity or that privilege or that charge. He said, no, no, my father is the gardener. He's the vine dresser. He's the one who's going to take care of the vine. But I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, let's go back in, in our scripture text just a minute to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, there's a couple of really cool verses that I need you to see that helps us understand, I think, this concept of the vine and the branches. Let's just begin in verse 18, John 14, 18. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's telling him he's going away. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Here it is in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. I've got that underlined in my Bible. If you underline or make notes, you need to mark that verse. That's verse 20. And then come on down to verse 23. This is another one you can underline. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, right away, don't think on the commandment to love him and the commandment to do his will or to keep his commandments. That's, that, we'll get to that, but not right away. Here's the emphasis I want you to see in those two verses. In chapter 14, verse 20 and 23, and another verse that we hadn't looked at, Jesus says three times in this chapter, 
there is a union between you, that is the branches, the believers, the Christians, and me. There is a spiritual union. And though he doesn't describe it in this particular passage like this, but here's what happens when you trust Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Savior and your Lord, the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within you. I can't say this often enough. I can't say it loud enough. I can't emphasize it too much. The one single factor that delineates who is and who isn't saved is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. If you have been born again, if you have been saved, whether it happened as a child or as an adult or somewhere in between, that is the divine factor that makes you a believer, that settles the issue of your eternal salvation. Not whether you're good enough, not whether you have kept all the commandments of Jesus, but does the Spirit of God live in you? You see, the Holy Spirit of God is the representative of Jesus Christ. So, in fact, Jesus does live in our hearts if we are saved people. Now, it's possible, like on a grapevine, for you to look like a very productive vine. It's possible for you to have a lot of greenery and a lot of leaves, but it's impossible to bear fruit. The kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well. And the fruit that he wants us to bear is the way that we can see and determine to some extent, who is and who is not saved. By their fruit, you shall know them. And so we have in this passage a whole lot going on, but here's what I want you to think of first of all. We who are believers, those who are born again, have a union with Christ, and it doesn't matter what church you belong to, it doesn't matter how many times or how you got baptized, though there is, there is a better way than some would have. It doesn't matter how old you are, how smart you are, how much you know, It matters that you have been saved. You have said, Lord Jesus, come into my life and take over. And when you sincerely do that, you sincerely mean it. The Holy Spirit of God comes into you and you will become born again. You will be saved. You will be changed from the inside out. God will continue to work in you and God will continue to prune your life so that you can bear more fruit. Do like this if you got it. You got it? Okay. Let's go on to something else he says in chapter 15. Now, the Father is the one who cuts away the branches that don't bear fruit, and he prunes those that do bear fruit. And in verse 3 it says, Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. You're already clean. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, just a few verses before this, When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, Peter said, No, Lord, don't wash my feet. I need to wash your feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. Then he said, Well, in that case, give me a bath. Remember that? And what did Jesus say to him? He said, Peter, you've already been bathed. I just need to wash your feet. You're already clean, he said. What does that mean? He had already been saved. He had already trusted in Jesus. And so you don't need to get saved again. In fact, the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 that if you are able to fall away from faith, if you're able to fall out of grace, if you're able to be unsaved, then there is no possible way you could ever be saved again. That's what he means in verse 3. Now, notice in verse 4, he begins using this word, and if I'm not mistaken in this passage, he uses this word 11 times. It's the word abide. 
And maybe in your Bible, it's a different word. In some translations, the word is remain, remain. You say, well, why is there such a discrepancy? Abide and remain, they don't sound like, well, there's a simple reason. The Greek word, and I don't want to impress you too much about being a Greek scholar because I'm not, but the Greek word here is the word meno. We spell it in English, M-E-N-O, with a long O in the end. And that word does not have an exact English equivalent. In fact, if you look it up in a concordance, if you look it up in a Greek-English dictionary, you will see it says intranslable. That means you can't translate it directly. There's no direct correlation in English to the Greek. So what does that word really mean? Well, you have to explain it because there's no word that explains it. And what it basically means is this. If you abide somewhere, that is the place where you live and make your home. That's what it means to abide. It's the place you live. It's the place you make your home. It's the place you always return to. It's the place where you spend leisure time. It's the place where you have your stuff. It's the place that you are responsible for keeping up. And so we understand that from a, a living situation. When my wife and I were first married, uh, we didn't talk about this, but we came to this conclusion at some point. Wherever we put our stuff, that's our home. And uh, we moved into this little apartment, that was our home. Then we moved into a little house, that was our home. We didn't own either one of them. We moved into an apartment in New Orleans in the seminary community, that was our home. Wherever we have been, that's been our home. And we have moved every place we have gone with the attitude, this is going to be our home till we die, until the Lord takes us someplace else. You see, there's this concept of abiding, of this is where I belong, this is where I'm put, this is where my stuff is, this is where my valuables are. And so Jesus is saying, if you make your home in me, if you abide in me, I will abide in you, and these things are going to happen if you do. Now let's just think about that for just a minute. Do you abide in Jesus? What does that mean, preacher? It means that you have more than a passing acquaintance with Jesus. It means that you're just not thinking about him as the man upstairs. You're just not thinking about him as the ticket to heaven. You're just not thinking about him as insurance against dying and going to hell. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you just buy that insurance? Well, it's not available. You could buy fire insurance on your house right? And if you drive a car in South Carolina, you're supposed to have insurance, and you can buy insurance against your car burning up, so that if it does happen, you know, you can replace it. But you see, abiding in Jesus means I make my home in the relationship with Jesus. That's where I live my life, in the context of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not just my good friend, he is my Lord. He is not just some far off God, but he is a person who lives in me and I am in him and we fellowship together and we talk together and we study the word so we can hear him speak to us and we can speak to him. Jesus should never be our last resort. He should always be our first resource in all things. And so we pray to him and ask his wisdom. We, we seek him out, and sometimes we just tell him how we think and feel about stuff. 
You know, I, I try not to ever complain much <laughs> to my wife. But I do complain to Jesus sometimes. You ever complain to Jesus? Yeah. You see, I believe one of the first rules of prayer, and I'll talk about this, the Lord willing, in a few weeks. One of the first rules of prayer is honesty. You don't have to hide your feelings from Jesus because he lives in you. He already knows how you think and feel. And there's something cathartic about our being able to tell him how we think and how we feel and express to him our disgust and dislike at some of the things that we face in life, maybe even some of the things he asks us to do. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus is saying in these words, and he says it over and over. In fact, you might want to read through this passage sometimes and just circle or underline every time it uses this word abide. Look at it again in verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Now, the importance of abiding is not so that Jesus can get his jollies by making you do stuff that you don't want to do. It doesn't really work that way. Let me give you an example. You may have heard this story before. It's been around a long time. The example was of a young woman who believed God was calling her to be a missionary to Africa. And this calling felt so strong, and, and she believed it was so true that God was calling her to be a missionary to, to Africa that she was willing to do anything it took to get to Alaska. I heard Adrian Rogers, one of the great preachers of the past, say this. He said, if this girl who felt God calling her to be a missionary to Africa was so strong in her heart, she would be willing to swim across the ocean to get there if she couldn't find a boat to take her. Now, what does that say about abiding? It says that when you practice abiding in Jesus Christ, your desires become his desires. His desires become your desires. And the things you desire, the things you ask for, the things you yearn for in your life, those are the things that God puts in your heart and trains you to desire so that you want to obey his will. You see, I know there are some people who have the attitude that to be a Christian means you have to always be doing stuff you don't like that's boring that doesn't matter or mean anything, and rather than being a Christian and have to do all this dull, religious, boring stuff, I just want to live my life and have a lot of fun. I want to do just what I want to do, and then when I die, I want to go to heaven and not have to go to hell. You see, that person has no understanding of what Christianity is all about. When God has some place for you to go, he will put a desire so strong in your heart to go there and to do that, you won't have to be convinced. God just works that desire in us so strongly. When, when I was feeling called to be a preacher back in the days of high school, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know what to study. And I kept asking God, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go to school? And finally it dawned on me one day during a worship service like this on a Sunday morning in my home church, God said to me, you need to be a preacher. And I didn't say, oh, no, boy, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't say that. I said, praise the Lord, I know what God wants me to do. I was happy. I wasn't sad. 
Now, I didn't know what lay ahead. I didn't know some of the issues and struggles that Libya and I would have to go through. I might have backed out if I'd known some of those things, but no, no. And so you see, when you, as a believer, practice abiding in the vine, that is being at home with the Lord and spending time with Him, not as a burden, but as a joy, as a delight, wow, that's a concept of Christianity that's appealing. I want to do that. I want to live that way. Not only that, he said, listen, if you abide in me and I abide in you, what does he say? He says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Unfortunately, a lot of people take this out of context. They just take this verse in isolation from the context that it's given in. And they claim the promise, well, God said anything I ask, anything I desire, he's going to do it for me. And I desired a brand new Cadillac. And he didn't give it to me. Therefore, he must not do what he says he will do. Really? I guess there are people who play the lottery, buy lottery tickets every week, and they pray. They pray, God, give me the winning numbers. Give me the winning numbers. And when they don't get the winning numbers, how do they believe? God mistreated them somehow? God didn't, you see? People take this thing in, in, uh, out of context all the time. And the other prayer promises in the scripture have other contexts that they teach the same thing. What is the context? Abiding in Christ. And when I abide in Christ, when I truly desire to be with him and, and to live my life in the context of his life and his will and his plans, I want the things that God wants for me. Well, I can be tempted to seek after other things, but they never satisfy. I can be tempted to commit sin, but it never is really fulfilled. It's always something lacking when you give in to temptation. There's always maybe an instant of pleasure, but then there's a long period of regret. But when I live in Christ, I abide in Christ, I remain in Christ it's not a chore for me to love him. It's not a chore for me to do his will. It is a joy. It is a delight. And as we pray about what to do and seeking God's wisdom and, and we bring our open hands before him, say, God, I just opened my hands. Uh, I, I want my life to be an evil, an, uh, evil, a level, a level playing field. So that if you tilt it this way, I'll go downhill. If you tilt it, whatever you want, God, is what I want to do. My life is open before you. You see, that's a concept that I just want everybody to learn who's a believer. And so when we abide in him, we will want to do his will. We want, will want to obey his commands and obey his plans for our lives. Now go with me again to verse 8 and 9. By this... That is, by abiding, by having our prayers answered. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I remember as a little boy at my grandmother's house, there was a grape arbor. They were Concord grapes. Some of you know Concord grapes, deep purple. And uh, when we have communion here in our church, we use Concord grapes instead of 
alcohol wine, alcoholic wine, and we could argue about that someday, but suffice it to say we use Welch's. We'll continue. <laughs> and these grapes would come on in the late summer, usually in August. Early in the spring, the grapes would put out little bitty green nubs, and they were hard, and if you had a, a slingshot, you could hit somebody in the head with one of them, and it would really zing them good. But by August, the grapes had grown, and they'd gotten full of, of liquid and that little pulp on the inside. And so we'd go pick grapes, and we'd just pick them and put them in our mouth and suck the juice and spit out the rest. The rest of it was kind of sour. Now, some years, there were so many grapes the people were giving grapes away. They couldn't use them all. They'd fall on the ground and rot. Some years, they were scarce. And you didn't have many grapes. And so you just pick a few, and you couldn't make enough grape juice to last for the winter. What do you think those who grow grapes for a living hope for every year? A bumper crop, right? And, and if you follow the wine market, I, I don't suppose many of us do. Most Baptists don't drink a lot of wine. Uh, but if you follow the grape market, they say that the wine prices reflect whatever year the wine was produced in, how much, how much the grape crop was, how many grapes were grown that year, how successful the farmers were who grow grapes. What do you think God wants from every one of us who are truly his children? He wants us to produce a crop. He wants us to produce fruit. Now the question becomes this. What is the fruit that we're talking about in this passage? Jesus doesn't define the fruit. Now later in our New Testament, years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Nine characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Surely that's part of it, isn't it? Those are nine characteristics of Christian character that should be the fruit of a Christian. But also the Bible talks about evangelism, soul winning, leading other people to Christ as the fruit. Uh, other times it talks about having harmony in the church and unity in the church. That's the fruit of the Spirit's working. There are many different things that define what this fruit is, but I want you to focus on that last verse for just a minute. In our text in verse 11, it says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How can you be joyful in the Christian life? How can your joy be full in the Christian life? If you abide in Christ and the result of that abiding in Christ is that your life produces fruit. Now, I'm taking a leap today in interpretation. I've never seen this before, but yesterday evening, as I was kind of struggling over what I was going to preach this morning, and I was studying this text, it was almost as though God spoke to me and gave me this word. So I'm, I'm trusting it's him. Abiding in Christ, I believe he gave me this word. Here is the fruit of a Christian, okay? The fruit of a Christian is when that person fulfills the purpose for which God made them. Say, what? That's pretty broad. Let me say it again. The fruit that Jesus is talking about, which brings in the joy, is when a person fulfills the lifestyle, 
fulfills the vocation, fulfills the role, fulfills perhaps even the personality type that he gave you when he made you to be able to live the life God created you to live. Let me give you a personal example. I believe God made me to be a preacher. I know there are folks who disagree with that. I've had lots of requests, but I'm going to still preach anyway. All right? Uh, there are folks, I believe, whom God has called to be school teachers. He made them that way. He gave that in their DNA. He put it within their personality. And every kind of definition of lifestyle, every kind of definition of job category or particular profession that you can imagine, when you fulfill God's plan for your life, doing what God led you, called you, made you to be, to do, you're going to find joy. You're going to find peace. And you know, sometimes those things change as our life circumstances change. Some of you are widows or widowers, not by your own choice, unless you poisoned him or her. I don't think that's happened. I hope not. Well, right now, it's God's plan for you to be single. Now, he may send you another life partner. You know, you might get married again. I don't know. And some of you uh, know what it's like to be in a job that you just hate. You might have been in a job for a long time and you couldn't do any better. You couldn't get out of it because you had financial obligations and family obligations. But you just hated your job. And finally, at some point, you got out of it and found something you really enjoy. And it's like daylight and dark. And now you're a joyful person. You found the place where God wants you. Now think about it in terms of the kingdom. Even though you may not work in the church and be on staff at a church, do you know you have a spiritual purpose as well? And that involves sharing your faith with other people who aren't believers. I mean, there are some people who are too bashful to do that right now. I mean, they're so bashful about their faith, they would not even lead the church in silent prayer. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> but at least invite somebody to church. At least pray for lost people. Uh, part of that joy and part of your role, part of the fulfillment of your role is to display Christian character as Paul lines up in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace. And you know what the fourth one is? Patience. Don't you love it? Patience. And so when you are abiding in Christ, when you are making your home in the Lord and you are being pruned by God, that is, he takes away some things so that you'll bear more fruit, God's end result for you is to be a joyful person. You're not changing the world in terms of politics, but you may be changing eternity for someone, somewhere. And you're just enjoying the life that God has given you to live. Some of you are fulfilled being mothers. Some of you are being fulfilled being fathers. God made you for that. God put you there for that reason. That's his purpose for you. So, let me recap. We are in relationship with God, spiritually united with him through Christ when we become born again. And we are then vines on the branch, or branches on the vine. <laughs> branches on the vine. And our branch is supposed to bear fruit. 
How do we do that? We simply fulfill the purpose for which God made us. Not everybody will be a preacher, praise the Lord. Not everybody's going to be called into the music ministry, praise the Lord. Some of y'all can't sing very good, praise the Lord. If you can't sing, hum. If you can't hum very well, just tap your foot or clap your hands or something else, you see. But when you discover that God made you for a purpose and abiding in Jesus opens the door to understanding that and simply obedience to what he tells you to do and loving him, that's the way to find joy in life. We try everything else, don't we? I mean, we try to buy something new sometimes to make us feel better. Some of us like to eat to make ourselves feel better. We do all kinds of things. We watch television, we go to movies, we read books. Not that those things in and of themselves are bad, but if you're looking for your purpose and your meaning in life and your joy in life by getting things and doing things, you're never going to find it. But when you surrender fully to God and say, God, have your way in my life, whatever that means, you're going to find peace, you're going to find joy, you're going to find love. Let's bow our heads for a moment. The real need that some of you have today is to let Jesus come in and be the Lord of your life. You may have an acquaintance with him because you went to church. Maybe you grew up in the church. You may know a lot about Jesus because you went to Bible school. In just a minute, I'm going to ask us to sing hymn 412. 412, the Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? What is it that stands between you and Jesus today? Are you afraid that you might have to give up something you love to follow Jesus? Are you generally afraid that you'll lose control? It takes faith to believe that God will hear your prayer, that he has good intended for you, and that it will be the best life you can live if you surrender to him. So some of you right now are kind of thinking that over. Will you ask Jesus to come into your heart and will you give him complete control? You know, I also believe there are some of us here today who have had those experiences. We, we know God's will is best, but we've walked away from it. Maybe in some area of our life, we, we started off doing God's will and what we thought was his will, and we yielded to temptation, and we stopped. And as a result, we don't pray much. We don't read our Bible much. We don't attend church much. We don't give much for God's work. Why don't you come back home to God? And while we sing this song in just a minute, if you're willing today to say, yes, I want to give Christ my life, I want to surrender fully to him, I'm going to ask you to come out of your seats and come up to the front of the church. Not as a spectacle, but as a surrender. Some of you, for the first time, you've never done that before. I'm not talking about come up in front of the church, but I'm talking about you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus before. And some of you need to come and rededicate your life because you've gotten out of the way of abiding. And you need to get back in there. And Jesus' arms are open to you as well. Father, I pray that you'll touch us and move us today toward Christ. For we pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Open your hymnal, if you will, 412 is our song. I think you probably know it. If you don't, it's easy to learn. And we're going to stand, and, and I'll be right here to greet you at the front of the church. If you will give your life to Christ today and surrender to him, I want you to come, and I want to have a brief word and a prayer with you, and then you go back to your seat. Let's stand up today. Whether you're coming for the first time or to rededicate or renew your life, come while we sing.